Welcome to the Power and Utility Surge, our continuing podcast series on matters impacting taxes for the power and utilities sector. I am Sal Montabano. I'm the lead tax partner for the power and utilities sector for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And today we're going to be covering the final bonus depreciation regs uh, and some issues specifically impacting utilities. So with respect to that, I'll start out with the logistics around the final bonus depreciation regs. This is really the second set of final bonus depreciation regs. There was a previous set issued in 2019 along with some proposed regs. So this set of regs clarified some issues in both the final regs that were issued last year and the proposed regs. This set of final depreciation regs is effective for property acquired after September 27, 2017 and placed in service in a tax year beginning on or after January 1st, 2021. So it's really effective next year, but you can retroactively apply these final regulations to the beginning of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act if you apply all these final regulations consistently. So these final regulations are fairly short uh, based on some of the other reg packages that have been issued related to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, talk about some general areas that are addressed within these regs. We're not going to do a deep dive into it. Uh, I know there are a lot of materials out there, PwC Insights and other PwC podcasts with respect to the general impacts of the final bonus appreciation regs. But I wanted to highlight a few things. The first thing was some clarifications around qualified improvement property. And remember that QIP needed a technical correction, and that technical correction came with the CARES Act earlier this year. What these regs clarify is when an improvement is actually made by the taxpayer. In order to have qualified improvement property, the taxpayer has to make the improvement. And these regs indicate that an improvement made by a third party under a written binding contract would qualify as a qualified improvement property. Uh, if the improvement is made by a prior owner of a property, and usually we're talking about building property, and you acquire that building, then it wouldn't be qualified QIP generally. So that's one of the things addressed in these final depreciation regs. The next thing that they clarified is determining when you have a previous depreciable interest in property for purposes of claiming 100% expensing on used property. And last year, they created a look back kind of safe harbor rule, if you will, which was essentially five calendar years uh, before you acquired the property. So if you own the property within the last five years and you acquire that property back, then it wouldn't qualify for 100% expensing under these new rules. What the clarification was in these final regulations is that it's actually five calendar years immediately before the calendar year of the property is being placed in service. So if you're a calendar year taxpayer and you acquired property now, uh, sometime here in Q4 of 2020, you would have to look back 
five calendar years before 2020 and all of 2020 up to this point in time to determine if you had owned that property previously. And if you had, then you, that property is ineligible for 100% expensing. The last thing I wanted to mention is that these final bonus appreciation regs clarify the component election that was placed in the proposed regulations last year. And basically, if you make the component election and the underlying property that the component is affixed to wouldn't qualify for 100% expensing, you may still have the opportunity to claim 100% expensing on that particular component. There's a whole series of clarifications in these rules around this component election. We're not going to do a deep dive into it because most utility property isn't going to qualify for 100% expensing anyway. So making that component election, at least if you're a regulated utility, uh, won't do you much good in getting that 100% expensing. So just wanted to highlight that component election is out there. And, uh, you know, there are other podcasts and insights that dive deeper into that component election. So be that as it may, what do we want to dive into on this uh, podcast? And I want to highlight a couple issues that I think are specific to regulated utilities in this podcast. The first issue is conformity between 163J and 168K. And remember, this goes back to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that the regulated utility industry made a trade-off. And the trade-off was, we're not going to take bonus depreciation or 100% expensing under 168K, but we want the ability to fully deduct interest under 163J without being subject to that limitation on interest in 163J. So if you're a regulated public utility, you're not subject to the interest limitation. However, you generally don't get 100% expensing under 168K. There's language in these final bonus depreciation regs that will tell you the instances in which you do and don't get 100% expensing if you're deemed to be a regulated public utility. And so the question comes up, what if you meet the de minimis rule under 163J? So in 163J, as we mentioned, regulated utilities are not subject to that limitation, but they generally have to bifurcate their activities, especially if they're a holding company with maybe regulated activities and non-regulated activities to determine whether they're subject to a partial limitation under 163J or whether they meet the de minimis rules under 163J, which essentially means that if over 90% of your operations are regulated, then all of your operations uh, are deemed to be exempted from the interest limitation in 163J. So the question arises, if we have what would generally be deemed to be non-regulated activities, so let's say we do the de minimis tests under 163J, and we find out that 93% of our activities are regulated, but maybe 7% of our activities are unregulated. For property that we're placing in service with respect to that unregulated piece, can we claim 100% expensing on that piece as if we're not subject to the public utility rule 
that prohibits you from claiming bonus depreciation and 100% expensing. And what this regulation provides is that you don't get the 100% expensing if property is primarily used in a regulated trader business as defined in 163J. So if you're deemed to be a regulated utility for 163J, you cannot take 100% expensing if your property is primarily used in the regulated trader business. So that begs the question, what does it mean to be primarily used in a regulated trader business? And these regs refer back to the old asset depreciation range regs, and they have a specific site, 1.167 little a dash 11 b4 little 3 little b. So you can rewind that and play that over and over again until you get that all written down. But basically, you have to look back to the ADR regs to determine if property is primarily used in a regulated trader business. Now, I may be old, and I certainly have a lot of experience at PwC, but I was not practicing back when the asset depreciation range was applicable, which would have been 1971 to 1980. But what I could tell you from those regs is that you generally look to the trader business and the use of the asset to classify the asset depreciation range that that asset would fall into. And the service put out a list of asset classes for various property. You would have to pigeonhole your, your property into one of those asset classes in order to determine the asset depreciation range that you're taking depreciation on. So with regard to the reference back to that and the primary use test in the ADR regs, it kind of begs the question, how does that help us in determining whether we are using property in a regulated or unregulated trader business? And are you bound by those ADR classifications? And for those of us that have looked at utility depreciation, you know that there's a number of asset classes that deal with a lot of utility property. For instance, asset class 49.21 deals with gas utility distribution facilities. Asset class 49.13 deals with electric utility steam production plant. Unfortunately, when you look at a lot of those asset classes, they don't really have a demarcation point between, let's say, utility plant used in a regulated business or utility plant that's used in an unregulated business. So if I have electric production plant, it could be unregulated or it could be regulated, but it probably will fall in the same asset class from an ADR standpoint. So when applying that primary use test, the question is, you know, if you have regulated property in an asset class and you have unregulated property in an asset class, does that primary use test in the ADR regs really help you in determining if you get bonus depreciation with respect to that? The other question that tends to come up a lot is what about wind and solar property that was never technically in an asset class or has no asset class life. So if you go down the list that were generally provided in the 80s and 70s for the asset depreciation range, obviously a lot of that predated a lot of the modern wind turbines, 
and solar panels that are being placed in service now and from both a regulated and unregulated perspective. So the question is, if you don't have an asset class that those would fall into, how do you use the ADR regs to determine if you get 100% expensing on that property or not? So, you know, I think there are more questions here than answers with regard to the reference to the ADR regs. I think you can look at it in one sense and say, hey, if most of my property that falls into asset class 49.15 for combustion turbine production plant is regulated, that may mean that any unregulated property that falls into that asset class wouldn't be subject to 100% expensing. I think the other flip side of the coin or other way you can look at it is that maybe I have multiple trades or businesses. Perhaps I have a regulated trade or business that falls into that particular asset class, and I have an unregulated trade or business that falls into that asset class. So I have to categorize my property based on which trade or business it applies to. And maybe I use that to claim 100% expensing with respect to that unregulated trader business. The one thing that I would counsel is certainly if the Treasury wanted conformity between 163J and 168K, it could have more clearly spelled that out in either the 163J regs that came out earlier this year or these final 168K regs on bonus depreciation. They could have easily created a rule that says that if you meet the de minimis test under 163J, then none of the property in that consolidated group is eligible for 100% expensing under 168K. They chose not to do that when they wrote the regs, both on the 163J and 168K front. What they said, and they use this language consistently, is to look back to this primary use test. So I would think that you could at least craft an argument that the rules aren't supposed to be uh, read consistently with respect to property that may or may not meet this de minimis test, and that there may be some wiggle room to claim bonus depreciation, even if your consolidated group meets the de minimis test under 163J. But I will admit, especially with the reference to the ADR regs, that that is all not free from doubt. The next point, or at least last point I want to point out specific to utilities in the final bonus depreciation regs has to do with leased property. And these final regs make it explicit that if a lessor's trader business is not a regulated utility trader business, but the lessee's trader business is a regulated utility trader business, that the property would still be eligible for 100% expensing from the lessor's perspective. So if a lessor is leasing property to a utility, you don't look through to the utility's trader business to determine if the property is eligible for 100% expensing. And I'd just like to quote one piece of the preamble to these final regulations. This approach broadly follows existing normalization rules, which predate TCJA and which provide generally for the reconciliation of tax income and book income for regulatory purposes for utilities, which provide that lessors to public utilities are not bound by such rules 
so long as they themselves are not a public utility. So both in the preamble to these final regs and in the regs themselves, they make it explicit that unless the lessor is a regulated trader business, that that lessor can still take 100% expenses. I wanted to highlight that language because I think it may have some applicability beyond these bonus depreciation regs. You know, a lot of utilities are looking at structures around renewables, and a lot of those structures may involve offloading a lot of the investment tax credits and depreciation benefits to third parties, to institutional investors. You know, a lot of utilities are going to be developing a lot of wind and solar over the next few years, and a lot of them certainly have already developed uh, uh, wind and solar, and are generating more credits than what they can utilize on their existing tax returns. So there's a number of structures being considered. Uh, a flip partnership is one of them. A sale leaseback structures are another, where third parties can, can get together with the utility, whether in the partnership or through a sale leaseback, these third parties may take the ITC and the bonus depreciation, uh, and the utility gets the power on the back end and may get a discount on that power for essentially offloading the investment tax credits and bonus depreciation to that third-party institutional investor. Now, there's been some reluctance on the part of regulated utilities to enter into these arrangements due to the normalization rules. And what the normalization rules provide is that you can't do indirectly what you could otherwise can't do directly. And that's specifically in the 1.46-6 investment tax credit normalization rules. And so what, is, what does that mean? Well, if a utility has to normalize investment tax credits and they have to give back those investment tax credits to their customers over time, there's always been a question that if they offload those ITCs through a flip partnership or through a sale leaseback arrangement to an institutional investor, and they use that to parlay that into cheaper power to their customers, is that an indirect violation of those investment tax credit normalization rules? And perhaps you can use the preamble to this final bonus depreciation regs and the language in the regs themselves to say, hey, no, we're not going to look through a sale leaseback arrangement to see whether the utility should or shouldn't be normalizing those investment tax credits. These rules seem to be pretty clear that we're not going to pierce the veil of whom the lessor is leasing the property to to see if it would be subject to bonus appreciation or not. And even the preamble, they seem to say favorably that this shouldn't apply from a normalization standpoint either. So I think there's some critical language in both the preamble and the regs themselves that may give you some comfort if you enter into a sale leaseback arrangement that if the utility is essentially offloading those investment tax credits to an institutional investor, that this is not going to be a normalization issue from that perspective. Again, there's not a lot of direct guidance out there on that. And I know that we may see some private letter rulings uh, evolve in different structures with respect to this. Uh, but I do think the language in the preamble and the final regs would give one comfort. 
So those are the two points that I really wanted to highlight uh, with respect to these regs specific to utilities. Kind of the conformity issue between 163J and 168K and the implication for lease property, lessors and lessees, and what they, that may mean in a broader normalization context. With that, we'll wrap up this podcast. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.